So good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, I'm David Hempton, and as Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it's my great pleasure and privilege to welcome you all to this, the 22nd James Luther Adams Forum on Religion and Society. And I'm especially grateful to um, uh, Dr. Stephen Maud, the uh, president of the James Luther Adams Foundation, uh, and tonight's speakers, Colin Boston, our own doctoral student, uh, and Unitarian Minister, and Dan McCannon, uh, my um, good friend and colleague, the Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Senior Lecturer in Divinity here at the Harvard Divinity School. So thank you, Dan, for bringing us together here this evening. And thanks also to our staff colleagues, um, Andrea Davis, Margie Jenkins, Matthew Turner, from the Office of Academic Affairs, and all other helpers uh, for supporting tonight's proceedings. So let's give all of those people a round of applause. And bring them together. Thank you. James Luther Adams, popularly known as JLA, uh, graduated from the Divinity School in uh, 1927. Our alumnus then went on to serve as Unitarian Minister in Salem, Massachusetts, and later in Wellesley Hills, Massachusetts. He also spent considerable time in Germany, as you know, in the mid-1930s, where he befriended Karl Barth and Albert Schweitzer. After his return to the United States, um, JLA started his long and most impressive career in academia by joining the uh, Midville Lombard Theological School in Chicago, he returned to Harvard in 1956 and served at the Harvard Divinity School as the Edward uh, Mallinckrodt Professor of Christian Ethics from 1956 until his retirement in 1968. As you all know, uh, James Luther Adams was um, probably the preeminent Unitarian intellectual throughout the middle decades of the 20th century and continues to be one of the two or three most quoted 20th century theologians in Unitarian Universalist pulpits today. One of his major contributions was to offer a more self-critical version of religious liberalism as an antidote to the progressive optimism of the 19th century. As a social ethicist, especially at HDS, Adam's influence extended well beyond Unitarian Universalism. He is remembered as one of the first Americans to offer a theological critique of uh, Nazism, a direct result of his travels to uh, Germany. He was the most important American interpreter of the work of Paul Tillich, uh, drawing out the ethical implications of Tillich's systematic theology. He was also an important bridge between social gospel liberalism and theologies of liberation. Please allow me to quote our, our President Stephen Maugh to summarize Adam's work when he writes, Adam's theology was closely related to his actions. It shaped, and he was shaped by his vital role in a labor strike as a young pastor, and by his participation in the resisting underground church in Nazi Germany. He founded and was a major participant in scores of voluntary associations. As a teacher, Adams was inspiring and exemplary. Everyone is at HDS. Um, <laughs> Not surprisingly, therefore, he had and still has an exceedingly loyal community of former students, many of whom uh, will uh, be in the audience this evening. Um, the James Luther Adams Foundation was created by his former students to keep his legacy alive. Um, this is a dream of all teachers. Um, and these former students include both UUs and people from other traditions, uh, graduates of the Divinity School as well as of Andover Newton Theological School, 
um, uh, Midville Lombard and the University of Chicago. So the James Luther Adams Forum is an annual event held in diverse locations and this year for the 22nd time. But I've been told, and I think this is accurate, this, um, uh, this is the first time it's been to HDS for at least a decade. Um, so especially uh, welcome back. Um, um, I, so I very much hope that you enjoy the lecture tonight. We're delighted to have uh, Dan McCannon give it, um, as well as the exchange of ideas and memories at the reception later. So please do stay for that. So it's now my uh, great pleasure to uh, call on the president of the James Luther Adams Society, Stephen uh, C. Mott, to come to the podium. So thank you, everyone, and please enjoy the evening. Welcome to Harvard Divinity School. Thank you. As the dean has mentioned, the mission of the James Luther Adams Foundation is to preserve the intellectual heritage of James Luther Adams. This organization was started when Adams retired so that he could continue his writings and that we were able to provide some money so he could have a secretary. But also to preserve the movies that Adams took in the 30s, in the early years of, of Nazism. Uh, they, the movies themselves would not last forever. We've tried to put them into different form. And uh, also we now have it in, as DVDs. And if you're interested in purchasing those DVDs, you'll find the information on our website under resources. So, and our website is very simple. It's James Luther Adams, all one word, small letters, dot org. JamesLutherAdams.org. We also, during this time, uh, produced his autobiography, which is entitled, Not Without Dust and Heat. Since his death in 1994, we've continued to preserve the tapes and papers that he wrote. And the main archive is at Syracuse University, which has a very specialized archive there, but we also have available materials in Harvard Divinity School. And as uh, Dean mentioned, the, this is the James Luther Adams Forum, which has gone on for 22 years. Uh, and we, the lectures deal with Adams or deal with topics that Adams was concerned about and related those topics to, to Adams. Our title says Foundation, which sort of gives you a feeling of lots of money. <laughs> but we don't have that type of endowment and we're dependent on individual gifts such as those who contributed on the, on the uh, program for, the, for tonight. We also want to thank uh, Harvard Divinity School for their wonderful job of hosting this tonight and uh, we appreciate that very much. Good evening, I'm Colin Bawson, and tonight I have the rather dubious distinction of introducing Dan McCannon. I say dubious because Dan happens to be one of my advisors. 
I defend my dissertation this spring, and I think that any graduate student, when given the task of introducing their advisor a few weeks before a defense, might be filled with fear and trembling. <laughs> the fact that I am not speaks something to Dan's generosity of spirit. You may know that he is the Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Senior Lecturer in Divinity here at Harvard. What you might not know is that his generosity allows him to fully occupy all parts of that title. He is a gifted scholar, an outstanding mentor, and one of the most devo devoted and compassionate lay leaders within the Unitarian Universalist Association. Now, since this is a forum at Harvard, I'm going to make the rather risky assumption that many of you know at least something about Dan's impressive scholarly credentials. Just would like to highlight two of his recent books, Eco-Alchemy, Anthropos I'm not gonna pronounce this right, <laughs> Anthroposophy, and the History and Future of Environmentalism, which was published just last month by the University of California Press. It details the intellectual and spiritual origins of the environmentalist movement through a study of the life and influence of Rudolf Steiner. Prophetic Encounters, the American Radical Tradition, was put out a few years ago by Beacon Press, which is owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association. It's a must read for anyone who is seriously interested in what Dan has broadly called the religious left, the many generation long tradition of people of faith who have brought their bodies and spirits to the causes of human freedom, racial and gender equality, economic solidarity, and global peace. Now, I hope that I will not be getting Dan in trouble with the academic powers that be by revealing that I think the majority of his scholarly corpus has been at the service of uncovering and bolstering this tradition of left-leaning, spiritually grounded organizing. Dan's scholarly commitment to the religious left is matched by his institutional commitment to Unitarian Universalism, one of the central proponents of the religious left. He's a devoted member of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Medford, where I've had the pleasure of preaching on occasion, and a critical organizer for the Unitarian Universalist Community of Scholars. Dan has played important roles in creating or sustaining Collegium, an academic society of Unitarian, or in the service of Unitarian Universalism, the Unitarian Universalist History and Heritage Society, the Unitarian Universalist Emerging Scholars Network, the Panel on Theological Education, and the Unitarian and Universalist Friends and Scholars and Friends group at the American Academy of Religion. In fact, I think I'm correct that he has played some role in all five of those groups within the last year, <laughs> which is all another way of praising Jan Dan's generosity and indicating the importance that he thinks institutions play in both sustaining scholarly discourse and creating positive social change. It's also one of the reasons why he's a good mentor. Again and again, he's reminded me of the ways in which committed scholarship is performed in relationship with the communities of which we are a part. And it would be remiss to say that he's done this alone. I could not give an introduction to Dan without expressing gratitude to Tammy and Oriana as well. Together, the three of you have reminded me that scholarship and community work is at its best when it's done in collaboration with and in the service of those we love. And all of this, Dan, is somewhat, I believe, like James Luther Adams. 
Adams believed a sense of responsibility in society issues from concern for something more reliable than the desire for personal success. It issues from the experience of and demand for community. So fear and trembling aside, I can think of no one better to give today's or tonight's James Luther Adams lecture than my dear mentor and friend, Dan McCannon. And I think I speak for all of us when I say we look forward to what you have to say, Dan. Welcome, everyone. It's wonderful to be sharing this evening and this conversation with all of you tonight. Thank you so much, Colin, for that introduction. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be reminded of all of the communities uh, that sustain me uh, uh, in my thinking and reflection. Um, as, as you'll see, I'll be talking a lot about the communities that sustained James Luther Adams. Uh, and I really appreciate being with so many of you who I've worked with in, in the organizations that Colin was just alluding to. Uh, I'm deeply grateful to Stephen Mott and the board of the James Luther Adams Foundation for extending this invitation to a historian uh, rather than a social ethicist for, uh, uh, for this particular time. I've relished the challenge of finding something to say about Adams that might be genuinely new to those of you who studied directly with him. And I look forward to hearing from you uh, during uh, the question answer time or during the reception to find out whether I succeeded uh, at that. I also hope to hear from those of you who may not be Unitarian Universalist about whether my account of Adam's Unitarianism coheres um, with the other dimensions of Adam's that may be at the forefront of your experience. I'm grateful to Dean Hempton and the Divinity School not only for hosting this event but for sustaining the legacy of Professor Adams uh, through the years since his retirement from our faculty. And I'd like to thank Skinner House Books, um, the UUA bookstore, Rose, um, and everyone involved in the publication of the documentary history of Unitarian Universalism, which has several Adams selections and which will be available for sale uh, after tonight's talk. And that was the project that gave me the opportunity to think deeply about the contours of Unitarian Universalist history in the 20th century. And in many ways, this talk is an outgrowth of that process. James Luther Adams is widely and appropriately remembered as an insightful social ethicist and an inspiring teacher of ministers, scholars, and activists. Most accounts of his legacy focus on the ideas he bequeathed to his successors. Ideas like the prophethood of all believers, the centrality of voluntary institutions to liberal religion and to democratic politics, and the need for liberalism to subject itself to rigorous and continuous self-examination and self-criticism. Adam's role as a historical actor, someone who directly shaped the evolution of institutions and the unfolding of events, has been widely acknowledged, but not deeply examined. I propose to undertake such an examination, drawing on Adam's own insistence that ideas are meaningful only when they are deeply embedded in historical context. 
as he so often said, undoubtedly directly to some of you, there is no immaculate conception of an idea. Adam's scholarly and ministerial career, which stretched from his ordination in 1927 to his receipt of the UUA Distinguished Service Award in 1973, coincided with a phase of Unitarian history sometimes called the Unitarian Renaissance. From the 30s through the 60s, Unitarian membership grew at a faster rate than that of the United States population as a whole, perhaps the only period of time in which that was true. Mainline Protestant churches were also growing in those years, but Unitarians grew twice as fast as Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists. Meanwhile, the Universalist Church of America barely grew at all in those decades, while the British Unitarians, the other analogous organization, suffered a 50% membership decline. So clearly something was happening in mid-century Unitarianism, and that something went beyond numbers. The new Beacon series that brought Dewey and Methods to religious education, the Unitarian Service Committee, the symbol of the flaming chalice, the fellowship movement, the witness for racial justice at Selma, and the consolidation of Unitarians and Universalists were all fruits of this period of Renaissance. It was a time when Unitarians had a common vision of liberalism as the religion of democracy. That vision inspired many loyal Unitarians to engage in creative work in the larger society. And the histories of Unitarianism written or edited by Conrad Wright, David Robinson, and John Burens, all the major kind of standard histories, also uh, Mark Harris's work, all um, unite in giving James Luther Adams and uh, Frederick May Elliott credit as the two architects of this mid-century Unitarian Renaissance. I agree with that assessment and pro propose to flesh out its details and add three significant nuances. The first of these nuances is that Adams' role in the Unitarian Renaissance is distorted if we think of him as an individual architect of change or even as a leader who galvanized followers on behalf of his vision. Rather, the vision of Unitarian renewal that Adams championed throughout his career was forged by a series of groups in which he was a devoted member, but by no means the leader. Tonight, I will focus on three what I'm calling Renaissance principles that will be familiar to any reader of Adams. First, the disciplined small group, not the individual, is the agent of renewal in church and society. Second, the most important task of any movement that claims to be liberal is ongoing self-criticism. Third, healthy movements do not regard themselves as ex exceptional, but continually learn from outsiders. I hope to convince you that these ideas did not spring immaculately from Adam's brain, but were the fruit of several small groups in which he participated prior to most of his published work. These include the Greenfield Ministerial Study Group, which Adams co-founded with seminary classmates in 1928. And I want to ask if we have any Greenfield members in the room? Okay, great. Can, you can hold me accountable on this stuff. 
Uh, the editorial board of the Christian Register, on which he served in 1933 and 1934, the commission of appraisal of 1934 to 1936, and the Independent Voters of Illinois, which Adams co-founded in 1942. Adams insisted that by their groups you shall know them, and it's through these groups, among many others, that we can best understand Adams' contribution to Unitarian history. The second nuance in my story is that Adams and Fred Elliott were by no means congenial partners in shaping the Unitarian Renaissance. In fact, Adams complained that when Elliott was elected as denominational president, he, quote, seemed to move in precisely the opposite direction from that recommended by the commission of appraisal that Elliott himself had chaired. That assessment was written decades after the fact, and it's not at all clear to me that Adams regarded Eliot as a revival back in the 1930s. But Adams' hindsight correctly identified a tension between his own bottom-up theory of institutional renewal and Eliot's top-down approach. I happen to think this was a creative tension and that neither approach alone would have fared so well. Nevertheless, the aspects of Adams and his group's vision that were sidelined by Eliot deserve our thoughtful consideration today. My third nuance is more grandiose. The Unitarian Renaissance coincided not only with Adams' career, but with a remarkable period in United States history. From the 1930s to the 1970s, U.S. society became steadily more equal as strong labor unions brought living wage jobs to millions of people and government programs expanded home ownership, protected retirees from poverty, and expanded access to higher education. By the end of this period, civil rights activists ended legal segregation and greatly increased the political participation of black and brown people. The Unitarian Renaissance contributed to all of these changes in large part by providing supportive congregational homes to such change agents as Aurelia Reinhardt of Mills College, Whitney Young of the Urban League, William Douglas of the Supreme Court, psychologist Kenneth Clark, and many more. It's important to remember the egalitarian achievements of the middle of the 20th century today because many of them have been dismantled over the past 40 years. I'm not at all sure that Adams himself would agree with my rather rosy assessment of the age in which he lived. He was, after all, deeply skeptical about the old liberal piety of the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. Yet he helped prove that even if progress cannot be sustained forever, diligent effort can sometimes keep it going for half a century and he may be able to help us revive it today. One place where the Unitarian Renaissance of the mid-20th century began was the Greenfield Group, a ministerial discussion group that Adams co-founded in 1928 with his Divinity School friends Leslie Pennington and Frank Holmes. This was the most enduring of Adams' groups. It survives today in roughly similar form as does its offshoot, the Prairie Group, uh, uh, established when Adams and Pennington moved to Chicago. Initially, about half a dozen young ministers gathered in a building owned by the Unitarian Layman's League 
to read essays on topics of their own choosing. They soon decided that this individualistic procedure led only to intellectual anarchy. So they assigned themselves preparatory readings for each meeting and expanded the amount of time they spent together, ultimately gathering for week-long seminars at Star Island in New Hampshire. Their choice of readings was shaped by their covenantal commitment to liberal churches in general and to Unitarian congregations in particular. But it was by no means limited to specifically liberal authors. They well read William Ellery Channing and Ernst Trelch alongside the irreligious humanists Irving Babbitt and John Dewey, as well as a host of Roman Catholic authors, Thomas Aquinas, Friedrich von Hugel, Jacques Maritain, even Fulton Sheen. They kind of covered the waterfront of Catholic thought. They took note of several outspoken Protestant critics of liberalism, especially those who argued that a return to creedal orthodoxy and group discipline was the needed antidote to fundamentalism and nationalism. At the end of each conversation, a scribe wrote down all the points on which all the members could agree. This practice of articulating consensus was intended to overcome the danger of anarchistic individualism without sacrificing the core liberal value of intellectual freedom. By working together on the same materials in complete freedom, they believed, they would achieve enough agreement to render binding doctrine unnecessary. In its emphasis on group discipline, Greenfield was modeled on and reacting against the Oxford group movement established by Frank Buckman in the 1920s. The Oxford group, which evolved into moral rearmament and then into initiatives for change, of change, and which helped inspire Alcoholics Anonymous, is less well remembered today than the neo-orthodoxy of Karl Barth and Reinhold Niebuhr. In the 1920s, though, it was equally prominent as a form of Protestantism that was anti-liberal without being fundamentalist. At its core were four group disciplines mutual confession of sins and temptations, surrendering one's life to God's direction, making restitution for past wrongs, and listening for God's ongoing direction. For Unitarians who were troubled by radical individualism, Oxford exerted a powerful attraction, yet aspects of its practice were incompatible with liberal principle. When Adams attended an Oxford meeting, he was horrified by the manipulative behavior of the group leader who claimed to have received a message directly from Jesus demanding that Adams reconcile with his fundamentalist father. <laughs> Why, Adams asked in return, didn't Jesus tell you that my father has already died? <laughs> Such experiences convinced Adams and his friends that religious liberals needed to find a more honest way to instill a powerful group spirit. Those of you who are familiar with Adam's later published writings and his work as a teacher will have recognized several Adamsian themes in my account of Greenfield's beginnings. Undoubtedly, he proposed several of the authors that appeared on the reading list, including his perennial favorites, Babbitt and von Hugel. But there's good reason to believe that Greenfield did more to shape Adams than Adams did to shape Greenfield. 
Adams was the youngest of the three founders. Several years elapsed between the founding of the Greenfield Group and Adams' first publication of the ideas for which he is known. And during those years, some of the other Greenfield participants published similar ideas. None of the early records of the groups offer the slightest hint that Adams was more significant in its founding than his friends Leslie Pennington and Frank Holmes. As the Greenfield group made, expanded to include most of the young ministers in the Boston area, it made its mark on the denomination. For a time, it embraced lay people in its membership in the hopes of seeding similar fellowships of study and devotion in each congregation. The group prepared a model order of worship that incorporated more liturgical elements than were common in Unitarian worship at the time. It recommended the cultivation of devotional practices and advocated for stronger engagement in social action at the level of the congregation. All of these proposals were interesting enough that in 1934, the group was invited to lead a session of the annual Unitarian Ministers Institute on the theme of the religious content of liberalism. Vivian Pomeroy, Andrew Banning, and James Luther Adams all prepared papers for this session, jointly articulating the theological agenda of the Unitarian Renaissance. By that time, Adams' thought was being shaped by two other groups whose membership overlapped with that of Greenfield. One of these was the editorial board of the Christian Register. Most biographies of Adams note that he served briefly as editor of the Christian Register in 1933 or 1934. That characterization is at least half true, but it leaves out the most interesting features of Adams' service to the major denominational journal. Here's the full story. For 15 years previously, the Register was edited by Alfred Diefenbach, who received a full-time salary for doing that work. Diefenbach was a convert from the Reformed Church to Unitarianism, and he was an ardent humanist. His editorship coincided with the period in which humanism became an accepted part of the Unitarian family, a change that obviously was not to everyone's liking. A petition called for his removal as editor in 1930, and soon thereafter the Register's trustees apologized on his behalf for his outspoken criticism of the Universalist leader, whose editor at the time, John von Schaich, was notorious for his defenses of white supremacy. But what really forced Diefenbach out of his editorial role was just the Great Depression. The abrupt collapse in subscriptions and advertising revenue after 1929 meant that the Register could no longer afford a full-time editor at all. The trustees then embarked on an editorial experiment, replacing Diefenbach with a 25-member editorial board. The board, in turn, selected an unpaid acting editor for each month throughout 1933 and 1934. It was a diverse board. It included the humanist heavy hitters John Dietrich, Ernest Caldecott and Raymond Bragg, the anti-humanist William Sullivan, and ministers of standing order congregations in Belmont, Milton, Salem, and Weston, Massachusetts. It included the former um, general secretary of the National Conference and former Unitarian Layman's League president, Percy Gardner. It included, along with Adams, his Harvard classmate and Greenfield co-founder, Leslie Pennington, and it included Frederick May Elliott. 
Adams was the second youngest member of this group. Uh, um, clearly not its dominant figure. But the board's main task was to distribute unpaid labor among its members. And so a definite advantage accrued to the young and the willing. <laughs> Adams wound up taking on the acting editorship for six continuous months, July to December of 1933, and other acting editors were similarly drawn from the younger half of the group. The editorial policy in 1933 and 1934 had several features that bore what we now think of as an Adamsian stamp. I suggest that Adams did not stamp the editorial board with these features. Once again, they were all stamping themselves together with a set of values that emerged from the collective work. First and foremost, the registered editorial board believed that only a chastened Self-critical liberalism would be able to offer its gifts to the world. They repeatedly published authors who argued that liberalism needed to get its own house in order. It's still a common habit, complained one author, for many of us to believe our doubts and doubt our beliefs. Now is the time for us to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. We know that the world is in the birth pangs of a new epoch. We must be born again with it. A week later, Thomas Harris, an Episcopal priest who served as a chaplain here at Harvard, made a case for what he called the reactionary approach to religion. Unless a man can give some notion of what he means by religion, unless he believes that religion has definite characteristics, he cannot be expected to be heard by youth. Because contrary to popular belief, youth respects authority and expects a leader to have some sense of direction. In the same issue, Greenfield Group co-founder Leslie Pennington contributed his version of liberal self-criticism in a piece called What is Liberty? Critiquing a purely negative, laissez-faire view of liberty, Pennington gave voice to another of my Renaissance principles, the idea that disciplined small groups are the true agents of social and ecclesial renewal. The free man, Pennington declared, is not simply free from restraint, he is rather one who forestalls restraint with self-restraint. The act of, quote, throwing off the binding authority of fixed creeds, he explains, leads not only to the freedom to think for oneself, but also the responsibility before God of thinking for oneself. Thus, the true genius of the liberal church is found only in the spiritual self-discipline of its members. Pennington drew a direct link between liberal religion and liberal politics, portraying the disciplines of the New Deal as a rebuttal to fascism in the same way that Unitarian self-discipline was a rebuttal to fundamentalism. These pointed expressions of liberal self-criticism all appear during the first month in which Adams served as acting editor. It's possible that he was the real champion of this and he got his friends to write pieces on topics dear to his own heart. But since he didn't contribute his own manifesto of liberal self-criticism at this time, it seems at least as likely that in 1933 he was in a deep listening mode, digesting ideas that he would articulate in their classic form in the inaugural editorials of the Journal of Liberal Religion six years later, editorials that are in the documentary history. The self-critical attitude of the editorial board implied a rejection of Unitarian exceptionalism and a willingness, 
even an intense desire to learn from religious leaders beyond the liberal fold. In the essay I just discussed, Leslie Pennington asked pointedly, how many of us take the trouble to study with care those institutions and views we condemn? Roman Catholicism, the social philosophy of Karl Marx, and the like. The editorial board of the 1930s also gave intense, repeated attention to the two movements that were then shaking up Protestantism, Karl Barth's neo-orthodoxy and Frank Buckman's Oxford group. I've already noted Adam's opinion of Buckman, and he was equally hostile to Barth, whom he portrayed in his autobiography as a self-important tyrant who refused to engage in dialogue with his critics. But it was precisely because the solutions that Barth and Buckman offered were so unacceptable that Adams and the Register editors insisted that their, leader, their readers, in principle, they insisted that all Unitarians wrestle with their ideas. During his time as acting editor, Adams inaugurated two features that institutionalized this Renaissance principle of learning from others. The world today was a digest of insights from other religious publications. Adams noted that the Register exchanged issues with periodicals ranging from the ultraviolet of scientific research to the infrared of fundamentalism. But ordinary church members who read only one denominational paper didn't have the benefit of this kaleidoscope of ideas. Adams promised to rectify this, beginning with a variety of perspectives on Bart and Buckman. The other feature inaugurated on the front page was contemporary thought around the world. This series consisted of multi-page analyses of significant non-Unitarian thinkers, beginning with the great Swedish ecumenist Nathan Soderblom. Though this series seems to have been Adam's idea, he contributed few of the actual pieces, even when the topics um, were thinkers dear to his heart. So he did write the essay on his favorite Catholic thinker, Baron von Hugel, but he didn't write the essay on Tillich. In its devotion to self-criticism, to learning from others, and to the transformative power of small groups, the Register Board prepared the way for the commission of appraisal, which was authorized at the American Unitarian Association's May meeting in 1934. Our current histories often present the commission as the brainchild of Adams, once again a revealing half-truth. The first public articulation of the commission idea was an article published in the Register by Kenneth McDougall. Because McDougall was a member of the congregation that Adams served as minister, it's easy for us to assume that it was really Adams' idea and that McDougall was just the spokesperson. After all, Adams is the famous one, right? And who remembers Kenneth McDougall? Anybody here remember Kenneth McDougall? All right, good for you. But in 1934, Kenneth McDougall was sufficiently well-known that the editor who introduced his letter urged subscribers to, quote, read it with an eye to the truth it may contain, not magnified or modified by the focus of the writer's name, well-known to our ministers and laymen alike. Adams would not have merited an introduction like that in 1934. He was a young minister who'd been called to McDougall's congregation a few months earlier. McDougall, the son of a prominent minister, had served as mission secretary for the Unitarian Layman's League. The League had hosted the early gatherings of the Greenfield Group, 
So it's possible that McDougall and Adams had been in dialogue about Unitarian renewal somewhat before Adams arrived in Wellesley. In any case, Adams' place in this story seems a little bit analogous to that of Martin Luther King Jr. in Montgomery two decades later. Both were young, extremely talented ministers, freshly called to congregations whose lay leaders had already been discussing and debating the ideas that these young ministers would come to champion. Whatever the exact genesis of the commission of appraisal idea, it centered on the Renaissance principles. It was first and foremost a call for Unitarians to learn from outsiders. McDougall was inspired by the appraisal commission of the layman's foreign missions inquiry. This was a jointly authored study of mainline Protestant mission activity chaired by Harvard philosopher William Ernest Hawking and released in 1932 and 1933. It was a watershed in the history of missions, calling for an emphasis on interfaith dialogue and social service rather than proselytization. It also provoked a fundamentalist backlash that divided the global mission community. For McDougall, it was an inspiring piece of wisdom from the mainline Protestant world, and as the work primarily of lay people, a model for the sort of inquiry that would be conducted not by denominational leaders, but by thoughtful members of their constituencies. McDougall's call was also a protest against the inbreeding of denominational officials, evident in the selection of three AUA executives to represent American Unitarianism at an upcoming International Congress of Liberals. The implicit suggestion was that a disciplined network of decentered small groups would be better able to guide the movement. Finally, McDougall was outraged by the fact that AUA President Lewis Cornish persisted in publishing optimistic reports, even as the Depression took an enormous toll on the denomination. We look in vain through his annual reports for a clear factual picture of conditions within our church here or abroad. Much more self-criticism was needed. Both the Greenfield Group and the Register Editorial Board rallied to McDougall's proposal. The Register published his letter along with an endorsement by board member Vivian Pomeroy, which led to press coverage in Boston newspapers and a bitter complaint by denominational executives they had, that they hadn't been given a chance to rebut. Leslie Pennington played a key role in gaining the endorsement of the ministerial union at their own May meeting. Frank Holmes introduced the motion to establish the commission at the May meeting, and it turned out that all the preliminary agitation did its work. Though former denominational president Samuel Atkins Elliott spoke against fully funding the commission, the final vote was unanimous in its favor. Afterward, the register editors signaled their hope that a denominational renaissance would contribute to national and global renewal. Rising to full consciousness of the chaotic conditions in the religious, economic, political, and moral life of the world, and accepting the universal challenge to liberalism, the Unitarians at their annual meeting took a decisive step to prepare their organized life for, for effective action. All of this pushed the Greenfield Group into the forefront of denominational activity. For the first time, Adams now appears in my story as a leader and not merely a member of a group. That group was the team appointed by the Minister's Institute to prepare a Greenfield-style seminar on the religious content of liberalism. As leader, Adams did not push himself forward. 
He wrote one of the three essays prepared for the seminar, but it was the last of the three. The first, by Vivian Pomeroy, used the challenge of the Oxford group to articulate a new vision for Unitarianism in a time of world crisis. We are witnessing a rediscovery of the religious power which works through small groups, he wrote, at the very time when in the political field, the liberty of the individual is being swept aside and whole peoples are yielding to emotional waves of loyalty to large and militant secular groups. Linking Buckman to Hitler, Pomeroy added that behind both the religious and political movement, there stands the astute or dictatorial leader. Such phenomena called for liberal resistance, but Pomeroy refused to make resistance his primary theme. It's now far more important that we should grapple with our own shortcomings. Although we shall never sacrifice the spirit of free inquiry to the strength of any institutionalism, he insisted, there's one question we must face. Why have we done so relatively little with our freedom? The reason was the failure of Unitarians to create an organic fellowship on the basis of freedom. And Pomeroy pointed to his own recent Greenfield experience as a counterexample of a kind of church, churchmanship in which personal religion will not be content to nourish itself, but will nourish the spirit of fellowship. Adam's essay for the Minister's Institute is, I believe, his first full-blown written articulation of the vision of religious liberalism for which he would become famous. It's framed as an articulation of group consensus, not of individual conviction. He used the pronoun we throughout, and this was not a rhetorical convention, but a fully earned expression of shared authorship. Acting on behalf of a we that included all the groups I've mentioned so far, Adams offered an ecclesiology in which the church provides both a social context and a set of group disciplines that translate shared insights into personal and social change. He called for um, deeper uh, devotional practice, even Catholic practices of meditative prayer and reading of religious biographies. And he called for deeper engagement with the secular arts and sciences on the grounds that every man has the religious obligation of coming to know the reality of God in as many ways as are possible for him. This echoed the Greenfield discipline of reading secular texts alongside religious ones. And Adams renewed the call for lay people to create groups like this as well. He hoped that by such group activity, our liberal church, quote, may eventually stand the supreme test of effectiveness that is, it may be judged by its fruits, by the kind of individuals and the kind of society it produces. Adams concluded his essay with a provocative proposal. The doctrines and disciplines that emerge from consensus-seeking groups of ministers and laypeople should in turn be the basis for decision and commitment by the larger community of religious liberals. Our group he wrote, has at least taken the first step toward the building up of a common doctrine and discipline. And as, it's, as a result, its members have for, found ourselves faced with a religious ideology and program definite to force us to acceptance or rejection. We believe that religious liberalism ought to place before all its adherents a similar opportunity for decision. And he ended on a prophetic note, multitudes, multitudes, 
in the valley of decision. Unitarians did not rally unanimously to that call. Many, no doubt, heard the Greenfield call for more self-discipline as a plea for theism against humanism, which I don't think was the intent. But the mostly positive reception of the Minister's Institute gave new urgency to the work of the Greenfield Group in the months ahead. And I suspect it had a lot to do with Adam's selection as a member of the Commission of Appraisal, which was actually appointed a few months later. Here he was once again the youngest, and with Frederick May Elliott, one of only two ministers in a group that, as intended, was dominated by laypeople. The commission issued its report two years later, by which time Adams had spent a year observing the rise of Nazism in Germany and been appointed to the Meadville faculty. This report can be read as an endorsement of the Renaissance principles uh, uh, and a rejection of the sectarian spirit that caused Unitarians to think of themselves as, quote, a small select superior group of women and men to whom an exclusive gift of truth has been granted. Above all, the commission urged Unitarians to put their own house in order so they might have a part in mobilizing all the forces of religious liberalism in, in a united effort to achieve basic democratic processes in modern life. The commission was also the launch pad uh, uh, of the presidential campaign of Frederick May Elliott, who was soon elected um, to the presidency of the Unitarian Association. And here's where my story takes an odd turn. Adams was not at all happy with the outcome of the commission's work. For all the strength of the diverse critiques proposed by the commission, he wrote in his autobiography, it lacked the power to implement any of its recommendations. Because General Assembly was not asked to vote on the recommendations, the commission, he wrote, was essentially a toothless enterprise. Once this became clear to me, I ceased any direct involvement. It strikes me in this regard that a significant part of my history involves not just the groups that I have joined, but also the groups I have left. Ouch. These words appear about a third of the way through Adam's autobiography, and they are almost the last words he has to say about his involvement in denominational affairs, even though that involvement did not cease. They follow on some scathing words about Frederick May Elliott. My biggest surprise when I read his autobiography was the difference between what he says about Fred Elliott and what historians imply when they identify him and Elliott as co-architects of the Unitarian Renaissance. Twice, he misidentified Eliot as the nephew of Harvard President Charles Eliot. He correctly identified him as the first cousin of T.S. Eliot, and then spent more time on T.S., the apostate from Unitarianism, than on Fred the President. Here's what he said about Fred. He favored centralized power and seemed to move in precisely the opposite direction from that recommended by the commission's report. At the same time, Frederick Elliott was a tireless worker who was, without any reservation, devoted in body, mind, and soul to his responsibilities as president. So at some level, Adams and Elliott were working for two different versions of the Unitarian Renaissance. Uh, uh, Elliott certainly was committed to the three principles I've mentioned, uh, self-criticism, learning from others, and disciplined small groups. 
But he added to these a fourth. Strong movements require strong leaders. From Eliot's perspective, much of what was wrong with Unitarianism in the 1930s was that one strong leader had passed from the scene and the next one hadn't yet arrived. This position has much to recommend it. Energetic grassroots movements often call strong leaders into being. As a member of the Register editorial board, Eliot had been part of the same small groups as Adams, and the experiences that Adams distilled into social ethical critique, Eliot distilled into charismatic leadership. His story is not that different from Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr., all charismatic leaders who personified and extended social visions that had first been articulated by disciplined small groups. Eliot's vision for denominational leadership was endorsed anew when the founding assembly of the UUA elected Dana McLean Greeley as its first president after Greeley promised to continue Eliot's tradition of a strong presidency. It's no accident that Greeley's opponent, William Rice, who championed a decentralized UUA, was one of Adams' successors at the Wellesley Hills Congregation. The problem with the strong leader approach is that strong leaders rarely beget their own successors, Greeley and Eliot notwithstanding. Uh, the more typical story involves the abrupt shift from a Roosevelt to a Truman, a Lincoln to a Johnson and a Grant. Transformative leaders always emerge from dynamic groups, and movements that fail to nurture such groups will eventually see the well of leadership run dry. Already at the Minister's Institute, Adams had warned against personality-based leadership. Too many Unitarian ministers, he complained, try to make it appear that the important ideas which they promulgate are the result of their own personal accomplishment. This tendency may feed the individual minister's own vanity, but it weakens the awareness and authority of a tradition. Excuse me. He urged ministers to preach not their private convictions, but the consensus of their groups, and to go out in groups of two or three in order to make evident to the laity the concord and solidarity that exist among us. In the wake of his disappointment with the commission and with Eliot, Adams disengaged from some important aspects of Unitarian life, even as he redoubled his efforts to nurture the Renaissance principles through his work as a theological educator. But he continued to participate in small groups with other Unitarians. One of these, the Independent Voters of Illinois, built an important bridge between the Unitarian Renaissance and the egalitarian Renaissance that took place in US culture as a whole. The IVI was the first of several organizations that sought to extend New Deal liberalism beyond the end of World War II. Founded in 1943, just before Roosevelt's death, it sought to limit the power of Chicago's democratic machine and provide a face-saving way for liberals of Republican heritage to align themselves with the New Deal. As one early pamphlet put it, the IVI was independent because it sought, quote, to galvanize into action the intelligent but unorganized liberal voters. Official nonpartisanship was a wise tactic in the land of Lincoln. It was also a great strategy for bringing Unitarians into the New Deal fold, since many of them had a heritage that stretched back through Republicanism to the Whig Party and the Federalists. The most famous politician to come out of the IVI 
Adlai Stevenson spoke for many when he observed that my mother was a Republican and a Unitarian, my father was a Democrat and a Presbyterian. I wound up in his party and her church, which seemed like an expedient solution to the problem. <laughs> Adam's own family story had a similar dynamic. His fundamentalist father was a Democrat, and his wife Margaret came from an old line Unitarian family that I'm guessing was Republican. The other power couple of the IVI was Senator Paul Douglas and his wife Emily Taft Douglas, a cousin of former Republican President Taft. Like her cousin, Taft Douglas ultimately served the Unitarian denomination as moderator. So notice what I've just said in passing. The two most important Unitarian politicians of the second half of the 20th century, Adlai Stevenson and Paul Douglas, both launched their careers as part of an intense small group in which James Luther Adams was also a key player. They helped lay the groundwork for the career of a still more famous politician with Unitarian Universalist family roots, Barack Obama. Adams, who was a bit younger than Stevenson and Douglas, served as the founding co-chair of the IVI, along with Jane Adams' successor, Charlotte Carr. Once again, he was the youngster in a distinguished crowd. Once again, he distilled many of the lessons learned in this group experience into subsequent ethical insights. As IVI chair, Adams had to fend off accusations that he was a communist while outmaneuvering the actual communists who were trying to gain control of the entire group. He battled the reactionary populism of Charles Coughlin, allied with the Congress of Industrial Organizations and its Catholic champion George Higgins, and supported the early desegregation campaigns of the Congress of Racial Equality, in which his student Homer Jack was active. Above all, he learned that grassroots organization is the key to all political accomplishments. The IVI learned, he wrote, that the way to demonstrate power was to organize precincts so that when the election came off, we could say, that precinct or that ward got that many votes and that candidate won because we secured the critical number of votes. The politicians took notice and realized they'd better listen to us. The IVI provided the template for Americans for Democratic Action, the group that solidified the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. By extension, it paved the way for the Democratic Party's embrace of the Southern freedom struggle of the 1950s and 60s, and for the expansion of social democratic programs like Medicare and Medicaid during the Great Society. It offered a template for local organizing that has been echoed in countless UU churches and fellowships since. I first became a UU in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and part of what attracted me and my family was the fact that it was the one place where we could encounter every single significant social justice activist in our small city, either as a fellow parishioner or as a guest preacher. Such small groups continue to exist in many corners of liberal religion and liberal politics today. Greenfield and Prairie study groups are still alive and have been joined by many other similar groups. I suspect that many people here are in a better position than I am to judge how faithful these groups are to the original vision. My impression is that few have retained the practice of seeking group consensus and then acting on it in the public sphere. And Adams hoped that ministerial study groups would provide a template for disciplined groups of lay people has gone largely unrealized. 
There's an echo of the vision in the covenant groups sponsored by many UU congregations, but these generally prioritize devotional activities and mutual support over theological reflection or social action. My experience in St. Cloud suggests there may be a connection between Adam's vision of a voluntary society and the hundreds of lay-led fellowships that sprang up between the 1940s and 1960s. But many of these have been the inverse of a covenant group, politically engaged in very effective ways, but uninterested in theology and spiritual practice. One group that may be able to bring all three dimensions together and to catalyze denominational change in ways similar to Greenfield is Black Lives of UU. We're in the very early stages of that story, but it's definitely one to watch. I also think that something of the Greenfield spirit may have been alive in the UUA board this past spring as it experimented with collective models of leadership in the co-presidency of Sophia Betancourt, Bill Sinkford, and Leon Spencer, followed by the tri-moderatorship of Gregory Boyd, Kathy Burek, and Elandria Williams. In the realm of liberal politics, the most continuous tradition of small group consensus-seeking and political mobilization, a la IVI, is the practice of community organizing inspired by Saul Alinsky. As many of you know, local congregations are often the site for such organizing, and almost every major city has a congregation-based community organization. In my experience, these sometimes resort to emotionally manipulative tactics that may savor more of the Oxford group than the Greenfield group. But it's hard to gainsay their role in preserving the progressive spirit in U.S. cities, even as state and federal governments have abandoned egalitarian ideals. Small groups committed to political engagement have, of course, proliferated in the past year as millions of U.S. Americans have woken up to the threat of fascism at our own doorstep. My own city of Somerville saw a political awakening this past um, year in the aldermanic elections that would make the founders of the IVI proud. Activists who had been inspired by the Bernie Sanders campaign came together, reached consensus on an astonishingly detailed list of policies intended to prevent the displacement of working class families in a booming real estate market, polled the local candidates about their degree of support for this list of policies, and did the mobilization necessary to get every single one of them elected. Yet groups like these are often catch, playing catch up to their counterparts on the right. James Luther Adams was attracted to small group organizing in part because he had grown up in an intense lay-led fundamentalist sect, the Plymouth Brethren. And it's still the case that religious and political conservatives are just better at small groups than liberals are. Beginning in the 1980s, Christian conservatives ran candidates for school board and state representative, while progressives, many of them non-church going, focused on national elections. And we know what happened. Over the course of a generation, the Democratic Party collapsed county by county across the American heartland. The Barack Obama campaign of 2008 revived local Democratic organizing only to see the Obama presidency rely on the Fred Elliott model of top-down charismatic leadership. And so, across the United States, much of the egalitarian work of the mid-century Renaissance has been destroyed. 
and we face an ironic crisis. Most U.S. Americans, by far the majority of younger U.S. Americans, support a living wage for all, government guarantees of the right to health care and higher education, a generous embrace of immigrants, and an end to white supremacy in our policing and to segregation in our schools. Yet the sentiments of the majority count for nothing without the disciplined small groups that can translate sentiment into power and power into policy. Our time is ripe for a new renaissance. Thank you. And we do have time for questions or conversation or filling in of some of the details um, or correction of some of the details. So, oh, so uh, thank you, Dan. That was great. And um, I have a lot of questions. But one that came to mind as I was hearing this this time was uh, that it's interesting that in your account of the Unitarian Re Renaissance, you neither mention uh, A. Powell Davies or Stephen Fritchman, who both were sort of larger-than-life ministers in the 40s and 50s and founded, in Davies' case, a number of churches in D.C. and in Fritchman's case, um, several in the LA area. And I'm curious uh, if you could reflect on a little bit um, Adam's relationship with those figures and sort of with the uh, ministry as he moved out of parish life and into places like Harvard. Um, or if you just don't know anything about it. Yeah, so I mean, so one of the things that happened as I worked on this is I initially imagined it was going to be 50% Unitarian Renaissance and 50% Adams, and I got so interested in what I found uh, uh, in those issues of the Christian Register in the 30s uh, that, as you saw, I spent most of my time on that. Uh, um, Davies and Fritchman, in, in quite different ways, were both um, central figures um, in... Uh, in the Unitarian Renaissance. There's a story about um, Davies and Supreme Court Justice um, William Douglas, I believe no relationship to Paul, uh, uh, um, that in many ways is similar to the Adams and Stevenson and Paul Douglas uh, story um, that would be part of a full accounting of, um, uh, of the interplay between uh, Unitarianism and New Deal liberalism. Fritchman's another story. So for those of you who, who aren't fully versed in, in UU history, uh, Fritchman was probably the second most important religious uh, fellow traveler or sub, subterranean member of the Communist Party in the middle decades of the 20th century. And he was, uh, for a time, uh, the editor of the Christian Register. After Adam's time, finally the denomination took it over more wholly. And Fritchman, who had been the denominational director of youth work, uh, um, ran the magazine. And for a time, both um, the youth organization and the Christian Register followed the Communist Party line, which was fairly easy to do uh, during the, the part of the war when the United States was allied with the Soviet Union, very difficult to do uh, when the Truman administration took a hard, uh, a hard right turn thereafter. Adams does not mention Fritchman in, this is actually a paragraph I skipped over. Um, 
Adams does not mention Frenchman in his autobiography, even though he devotes an entire chapter uh, to uh, a very parallel struggle in a different publication, The Protestant, on which he was the editorial board uh, member um, that had to kick out its uh, communist-aligned uh, editor. Um, so I assume Adams would have sympathized with the anti-Frenchman uh, faction in that struggle, uh, and a lot of uh, Socialist Party loyalists were in the, anti, in the forefront of the anti-Frenchman faction. But I don't know. Does anybody else know what kind of relationship Adams had with Frenchman? It's a mystery. <laughs> and many, many of the people who had been on opposite sides in that Frenchman struggle in the 1940s uh, wound up on the same side uh, in the late 1960s um, in the struggle around um, black empowerment within Unitarian Universalism, where the, some of the early um, promoters of that uh, came out of Frenchman's congregation in Los Angeles, but people like Jack Mendelson, um, who had been opponents of Frenchman in the 40s, were strong allies of black empowerment in the 60s. I think it may be important to mention that Tim and Margaret Adams Oh, yeah. Microphone. I think it may be important to note that Jim and Margaret Adams were active members of the Arlington Street Church throughout their time here in Cambridge. So he was an active churchman all the way through. Thank you. Yes. I think, I think they were actually active at First Parish Cambridge and then switched to Arlington Street at some point. Um, I'm, I'm not up to speed on the subject very much, but I did enjoy reading uh, Adams's autobiography. And I, it, it just kept occurring to me that he's, uh, I'm just, I guess my question is, how much did his earlier experience in the capitalist economy and being very successful in that economy influence his later ideas and mode of action? He seems to me like a serial entrepreneur, quote unquote, <laughs> like forming groups and new organizations all the time. And, yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point. For those of you who may not have read the autobiography, a lot of the early chapters focus on uh, having to drop out of school as a young man um, uh, because of family poverty and making a career on the railroad uh, uh, in a variety of uh, both blue and white collar jobs within the railroad industry and absolutely this kind of pattern of serial entrepreneurship. How that translates into Social democratic political commitment. Hmm. I bet others have more to say on that than I do. The thing that seems distinctive to me about Adams writing about capitalism is he's doing it from a community capitalism, that it's, you're doing it together, that you're worrying about the other stakeholders involved as yeah. much as your own, what I would call the idealized capitalism we have today of the sociopathic capitalism, where you only worry about yourself and what's legally able, it's, that capitalism we're struggling with today is so different from Adams uh, glorifying a capitalism that was looking out for the whole community. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly interesting that though he was often called a communist, he does not seem to have had a communist phase or any point when he was fully over on the, you know, in the Marxist view of the world. Uh, and that may have had something to do with those, those early experiences. 
Yeah. So Dan, right at the end you mentioned um, community organizing and a lot of us have been involved in the last 20 years in this faith-based model. So would you say that if, if Jim Adams were around now that he would be immersed in that? that would he be a critic of it? Would he see some great value in faith-based community organizing? Or Yeah, so he was in Chicago um, during uh, some of the heyday of Alinsky's activity there, and I believe he was an ally and, uh, and connected to that. So, um, uh, so he definitely... Um, uh, would would have been predisposed, you know, to be to be sympathetic. Um, the, you know, I made a, a, a sideways uh, critique of what I see as sometimes emotionally um, uh, coercive tactics uh, in the particular model of of organizing promoted by the the major Postolinsky organizations. Uh, and, you know, I have a hunch, you know, from my reading of, of his reaction to the Oxford group, that he might have had a sensitivity to that as well, but it's no more than a hunch. Did you want to speak? I'd just add that uh, one of the earlier writings about community organizing was done by Adams in describing the Chicago movement. Okay. It, it had an initial influence that many to get into community organizing. Yeah, and it's certainly, you know, the fact that Alinsky, um, who was, uh, uh, had a vexed at best relationship to his own Judaism, uh, found so many allies in the churches, uh, has a lot to do with the fact that community organizing has found such a continuous home in religious communities. Okay, it looks like this is a group that might be ready for our reception. Uh, um, I will sit here for a few minutes to sign books if you'd like to purchase either the Documentary History of Prophetic Encounters. Um, uh, and then I will follow the rest of you on into the Brown Room, which is all the way at the end of the hall uh, in that direction uh, for our reception. Thank you so much for coming.